Now I kind of want to find out from, say, 10 high-profile coaches, general managers, people within hockey. I want to know what their cell phones are, and then I want to have one of those match <laughs> games, Jamie, where we send it out on a form and say, okay, draw a line between this person and the phone that he happens to own and see how many people can actually get it. We've had so many texts on this because we started talking about what kind of phone does Daryl Sutter have? Like, what kind of cell phone does he have? Is it a cell phone? I tend to think that it's more up-to-date than people think, but we've had some pretty funny submissions on this. Yeah, it is. And another one comes in uh, to the Calgary inbox, 960-960. It says, I bumped into Brian Burke at the Regina Airport after the Heritage Classic. I swear he was rocking an iPhone 4 in 2020 that's from calvin in calgary so that's another uh you know hockey executive i don't know if he had been hired by the penguins at that time and not i guess not he still would have been working for sports that but another hockey executive a little bit behind the times on the cell phone technology that's not the only text we got about brian burke and this is from way back in time it's not 2020 this is around the turn of the century this comes from jay and eastman who says while delivering water to offices in gm place as it was called at the time close to the nhl trade deadline circa 2000 was waved into Brian Burke's office by Brian himself from behind his desk. He had one phone to his ear, another over his shoulder, and a third receiver also loose on his desk. There were piles of paper, files, boxes, attache cases surrounding him, long phone cords crisscrossing the man, and no one else in sight in the office. 100% solo. It was unforgettable, says Jay and Eastman. That's how I picture uh, Kevin Adams in the Buffalo front office right now. <laughs> like, all of the help has been let go. There's no other staff around. He's doing everything, right? He's he's making coffee. He's making phone calls. He's running the photocopier. He is doing it all because there's nobody else there in Buffalo. And then Tom Dundon in Carolina. And, yes, we'll bypass Don Waddell on this one because we know how involved Don Waddell is. Like, Don Waddell's got the earpiece with a whole bunch of screens up on the wall. And he is conducting business as he walks. He's not sitting while he's talking. He's walking around, right? He's one of those active guys. Yes, exactly. And uh, I think Julian Brisebois, I just, I think, would have a very kind of almost like a Bond villain layer. You know what I mean? Where it's just (laughs) very kind of sparse, sparsely decorated, neat, but a little intimidating. And he's just got like the one phone. That's all he needs. That's where he does all of his business. Bergevin probably has some phone that is a giant to most of us, but looks just tiny in his hand. (laughs) <laughs> or it's built into whatever uh, like CrossFit training device that he yeah. has in his, his whatever gym equipment just has the phone built into it. Yeah, he's got the Apple Watch going. He's got the earpiece. Yeah, yeah that that's happening for sure. <laughs> Had all these people texting. Do you remember Jay Beagle? Like they found when Jay Beagle got signed by Vancouver, that people talked about how well, he might not answer his his phone because he barely uses it. He still has one of those like Nokia deals where you have to hit the <laughs> the three you know, three different times if you want to type right. F onto your screen. Yeah, if you want to actually text, it's going to be an incredible, uh, laborious... Pro- I remember the first time I got a phone, it didn't have... You know, it was still like a flip phone, right? But what it did... So it had the the nine numbers and zero, like as a normal keypad laid out. But then kind of in little buttons in between all of the numbers, it had the actual letters. And it felt revolutionary. You could actually type a text without having to cycle through the letters that quickly and it was amazing and now it looks completely ridiculous it's like why would we ever do that we have the touch screen now at the time it felt incredible 
It's Scott Rentil. It's Jamie Dodd. On your screens yesterday, probably like ours, a lot of NFL football. So I want to dive back in and talk some gridiron here. We're going to get to the CFL story at the bottom of the hour. It was an interesting weekend, and there's a breaking story today, obviously, out of Toronto with the return of Chris Jones, which appears imminent. Jamie, let's go to the National Football League yesterday. There was a lot happening. What's Which is the team that impressed you most? Does one stand above the rest of the 28 teams that went head-to-head yesterday? So we touched on it a little bit in the opening segment, Scotty, and I think it has to be the New Orleans Saints. And look, there's a bunch of potential answers here, I understand, but people had Green Bay as a favorite, as a potential Super Bowl favorite from the NFC, right? And there was a a school of thought, and I completely understand this, that Aaron Rodgers was going to be so locked in after everything that happened. He wanted to prove everyone wrong. He wanted to prove that he is still the deserving MVP, and they were going to come out on fire. And... New Orleans just completely, completely shut them down. And I know a lot of people will look at Jameis Winston throwing five touchdowns, zero interceptions. Okay, that's great. But really, it's about the defense. They only allowed 230 total yards, 229. One of 10 on third downs for Green Bay trying to pick it up. That defense is going to be what carries New Orleans. And they were fantastic in difficult circumstances. Remember, this was a neutral site game. They didn't get to play it at home in the Superdome. They had to travel to Jacksonville. They're still able to completely stomp Green Bay. Given the level of talent on the other side and the performance from that defense, the Saints are the most impressive team for me. It's hard to argue with that, but I will. I'm going to go with Kansas City, and that feels like chalk. Here's why. They were missing a couple of defensive stalwarts, including Tyron Matthew, yesterday in that game. One of the great tests of a team is can you win games where the other team is rolling? And that's the only reason I discount New Orleans lost yesterday, and they were fantastic. It's not their fault that Green Bay just didn't bring its best yesterday. It has nothing to do with the Saints. Maybe part of it does because they were mowing them down in the first half, and they were tiring them out in that heat. But Cleveland brought it yesterday. Like Cleveland had everything working for a really long time. Kansas City was able to absorb it. They were able to keep that game within reach. And then they were able to make special plays at special times. So I'm still going to go with the Kansas City Chiefs here. Two-time defending AFC champs. It has to be Kansas City because they found a way to win in a game in which their opponent held up its end of the bargain. It's not a bad answer, Scotty, because they proved, first of all, you're going to have to be basically perfect if you want to beat us. Cleveland was basically perfect in the first half, but they made those big mistakes in the second half that made them lose the game ultimately. So they proved to everyone, look, we're still Kansas City. You got to be at at the absolute top of your game if you're going to beat us. And the other thing they showed is they are still the team that can crush your soul more quickly than anyone else, right? That Patrick Mahomes to Tyreek Hill 75-yard touchdown – I don't know if there's another team in the league that can make that play. Only Kansas City can make that play, and they do it on a fairly regular basis, and it's just so hard to deal with if you're on the opposing sideline because it crushes your soul. They still have that ability uniquely from other teams. So I get the pick 100% here. I heard that said about Buffalo yesterday, that Buffalo needs to look at that game for a couple of reasons. I told you why they needed to look at Cleveland and the aggressive attitude that Cleveland came with and the belief that Cleveland had in itself in that game. They also need to look at Kansas City a little bit because if you believe you're there and you believe you have guys like Stephon Diggs who are better playmakers, sometimes you're just going to have to take a shot. You're going to have to take a shot downfield, even if there's coverage. You're going to have to find a way to scheme up your offense to dictate some of those shots downfield. Buffalo didn't do that enough yesterday. 
yeah, if Josh Allen and Stephon Diggs are the players you think they are and that they looked like last year, you're right. They Sometimes they just have to win. And it can't be because you've drawn up the perfect scheme to get Stephon Diggs open. It just has to be, I'm better. He's better than his guy. He's better than the guy guarding him, defending him, and he's going to win on that play. That's what that's the ability that Patrick Mahomes and Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey have. Seemingly, they're better at it than almost any other group of skill position players in the league, than any other group, really. Okay, so we're giving you the teams that impressed us the most. Who's the player on Sunday that impressed you above all else? It's got to be Chandler Jones for me. And I know it's, you know, it's not a quarterback. It's not a wide receiver showing out and racking up the fantasy points. He had five sacks. He was dominant. He made life miserable for Tennessee. I don't see, see people say, you know, he basically single-handedly blew up their game plan uh, for the for the Arizona Cardinals on the defensive line. Five sacks in a game is just such a stunning number. It has to be Chandler Jones for me. He's been kind of underrated for a while, I think. And look, that's a, that's a one-off. That's an aberration. I get that in week one. But if he's a dominant pass rusher, like, and if he's anything close to what he looked like last week, that could be huge for the Cardinals defense. So I was blown away by Chandler Jones, easily the individual player that impressed me the most. He was one of my two honorable mentions. And I'm going to go with a guy that we expect it from, but he did it on the road, and he looked as in command of the offense as he ever has. It's Russell Wilson yesterday, 18 for 23, four scores, had the deep ball working, had the intermediate game working, had complete control of that game from an offensive standpoint. Their running game looked very good yesterday in Seattle and the balance that they brought to that offense. But Russ still cooked. He drove that entire operation. He led them to the big first half. I'm going with Russell Wilson. We talked about last year coming into the season. Wow, this guy who's never had a vote for MVP, and he started the first half like a house on fire. He was the leader, and then that faded. He, he looks like he's got another point to prove, if you can believe it, given how highly we regard him. It's an interesting pick. It's, you know, I think maybe the reason I overlooked it is because we've seen games like that from Russell Wilson, so it almost feels, as you say, expected. But you're right. He was in complete control. The most, the most remarkable thing about that Seahawks game to me, Scotty, was just the fact that, I don't want to say easy, but it, it felt routine. Right? Like it just, there was never that classic Seahawks moment where you felt like they were getting a little too cute or where they weren't letting Russell Wilson do enough with the ball or they let Indianapolis back into it for whatever reason. They just took care of business. Wilson was in full control, but the entire team really was in full control. I, I know early, especially in the first half, you know, Jonathan Taylor had a lot of success running the ball against them, but that defensive line stepped up and it just felt normal it felt like a really good team going on the road playing their game and beating a slightly worse team or a little bit worse team anyways there haven't been a lot of routine feeling Seahawks games in recent years that was my biggest takeaway from that one what's the most impressive win that nobody's talking about because we jump on the favorites and the people who put up fantasy points what's the most impressive win from yesterday that nobody's really giving much attention to today so I don't know if nobody is talking about it, because I think certainly if you're invested from a fantasy perspective, you're, you're paying attention to it. But I'll go with the Philadelphia Eagles going on the road to Atlanta. And look, we all expect Atlanta to stink this year. I get that. But it's not. There are plenty of questions about the Eagles as well. They go on the road. They win 32-6. And the big takeaway is Jalen Hurts looking extremely comfortable as a passer, still dynamic. As a runner, 264 yards, three touchdowns through the air, picked up another 62 yards on the ground. If that's the Jalen Hurts we're going to get 
in that weak NFC East, Philadelphia are going to be major players, I think. Because, again, there's there's been questions. Like last year he in his stint, he was very effective from a fantasy perspective, but left you with some major questions about, okay, can he really be an effective passer? I think he started to answer those questions in a big way yesterday for Philly. So, again, I don't know if nobody's talking about it, but because we don't look at them as real playoff contenders, because, yeah, it was against a bad Atlanta team, I think it's flown a little bit under the radar. That's very, very encouraging for Philly, though. Yeah, that's a fair suggestion. I would say Denver to me. Denver controlled that game yesterday. I got some flack from Broncos fans that I know after the show on Friday when I just bypassed that game. And I went, Denver, New York Giants, meh. Basically is how I summed it up on Friday when we were looking at the NFL (laughs) schedule. Teddy Bridgewater was in control yesterday. He's 28 of 36 in that game. The yardage doesn't jump off the page. Two touchdowns, didn't turn the ball over. They had the ball for the bulk of that game. We expected Denver to have a good defense this year. That showed up against yes again yesterday. Giants fans, I know they're going to ease him in a little bit, but they have to be concerned with that performance from Saquon Barkley. In fact, oh, he only yeah. touched the ball, what, 10 times, 11 times yesterday? That yep. can't continue. Daniel Jones was actually all right in that game, but he never had the ball. Denver, low-key win, impressive style to me over the weekend. And Denver, the interesting thing with them is there was so much attention paid to the quarterback battle, and eventually it's won by Teddy Bridgewater. I think people sleep a little bit on the weapons at Denver's disposal for whoever's playing quarterback. Now, Jerry Judy got hurt, which is a big blow to them. It doesn't seem like it's going to be super long-term, but out at least until October are the reports that I've seen, which is a blow. But when healthy with Judy, with Cortland Sutton, with Noah Noah Fant at tight end, who I think is a really dynamic uh, threat as a playmaker, you know, they've got the rookie running back, Javante Williams, that they're really excited about. They have the pieces on offense that Teddy Bridgewater doesn't need to be fantastic. He just needs to get the ball to those guys. And with the defense that they have, you can win games that way. What's the most disappointing performance of the weekend? You can pick a player. You can pick a team. What's the most disappointing performance you saw? So I'm going to go back to Tennessee because they go get Julio Jones, right? And we know how how effective that offense has been in recent seasons with Ryan Tannehill since Ryan Tannehill has taken over, really. And you just thought, okay, another – look, Julio Jones, yeah, he's getting up there in age, but he can still – be really, really effective on the field. He's still got that physical presence with Jones and A.J. Brown on the outside and then Derrick Henry doing his thing at running back. You really didn't expect them to miss a beat. But I think I maybe was underestimating the impact that the departure of Arthur Smith would have on them, that losing their offensive coordinator, who's now the head coach in Atlanta, would have because that was a very, very tough offensive performance. They did they had no rhythm whatsoever. Henry couldn't get going. Julio Jones was a flop in his debut. And full credit to the Cardinals' defense. And, you know, I was already giving a shout-out to, to Chandler Jones for what he was able to do rushing the quarterback. But we didn't expect Arizona to be a dominant defensive unit this year. So for Tennessee to struggle that badly – at home to start the season, it's a major, major warning sign for me. I think most people said the exact same thing about Tennessee. Well, the offense will be fine. Can the defense stop anybody? Yep. Are they going to have to win 35-32 every single week or something in that ballpark? Nobody expected the offense to look as bad as it did yesterday. <laughs> Taylor Lewin, nope. I mean, there's a day to forget. You talk about Chandler oh. Jones. I mean, what an awful day at the office for him. We'll see how Tennessee bounces back. This will catch a lot of people by surprise. I'm going to say Buffalo is the most disappointing performance because my expectations were high. It's easy to say Green Bay or Tennessee here, but I almost think when you have a performance where nothing goes right, that's almost easier to brush off than when you should 
have won a game, in Buffalo's case, or made some fatal flaws self-inflicted that cost you a game against a good opponent. Like, we're holding Buffalo to the standard of, we think you're the team that can can contend with Kansas City. And you do that in the second half of your home opener? That was the most disappointing to me, and maybe it has to do with how much we expect from Josh Allen after getting into the MVP conversation last year. It was just disappointing on a bunch of levels that a that what we consider a good team just frittered it away. And, and yes, credit to the Steelers' defense, but the offense wasn't going for Pittsburgh. You have a gaffe on special teams at the end that ultimately cost you the game as well. Yeah, Buffalo I'm going to put as my biggest disappointment. It, it does feel like, okay, if you're Buffalo, you're playing at home, and you limit the opposing offense like you did on Sunday, like because the, the Steelers' offense was no good, right? They were just no good on Sunday. If you can sh- completely shut down the other offense, basically, it almost shouldn't matter what defense you're going up against, right? You should still find a way to win the game. You're at home. You've taken the other offense out of the equation. Yeah, Pittsburgh's defense is incredible. That's one of the major takeaways from week one for me is just how talented that defense is. But Buffalo still, with the playmakers they have, with the overall talent on that roster, they still should have found a way to win the game. And they beat themselves, ultimately. And yeah, that is a frustrating performance, right? Because, you know, who knows? With that defense, maybe Pittsburgh could be, you know, contending with them uh, for playoff seeding down the road. You had a chance to go get an important win against an AFC opponent in week one, and you blew it. If you look at the standings today, and yes, we're almost through one week. We've got the Raiders and the Ravens going tonight from Las Vegas. But if you look at the standings, there are a couple things that jump out immediately. One is that there's a division that is perfect, and the other is that there is a division without a win yet. Let's get to the perfect division. That is the NFC West, which you and I both and many others agree is the best in all of football. I want you to rank those wins. They all won yesterday, so you rank those wins in order from best win to worst win yesterday, if we can call a win the worst. So I'll start with the Cardinals. Yeah, the Titans looked bad on offense, but you got to give a lot of credit to what the Cardinals were able to do on defense as well. You go on the road against a team that a lot of people have as kind of a lock for the playoffs, and you win like that. Yeah, there were some early hiccups from the Cardinals on offense, but Kyler Murray was fantastic. The defense did its job. That is a statement win for a Cardinals team that, you know, still – They're going to be really in tough to make the playoffs in that division, but they needed to get off to a good start like that. So I got the Cardinals one. I'll go the Seahawks two. Again, I know the the Colts defense was a little undermanned in the secondary, and Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf were able to take advantage of that. But that's still a really good Colts defense, a really good Colts offensive line as well, which the Seahawks handled pretty easily with their defensive front. So I'll say the Seahawks, again, on the road against a team a lot of people like to make the playoffs, getting a comfortable win. In third, I have the Rams. Very, very impressive. There's no really, well, we'll get to the Niners in a second because that was a bizarre one. But, you know, I have the Rams third. It's not that it wasn't an impressive win. It was. Matthew Stafford looked fantastic in his debut. But you're playing Andy Dalton at home. There's a certain level of expectation that you're going to go out and perform. They did that and more. The Rams looked really good. If the final two minutes of the game hadn't happened for the Niners, I don't know where I would have put them. It would have been a lot more difficult because they dominated the Lions in Detroit. Yeah, the Lions not expected to be any great shakes this year, but still you go on the road and you do what you're expected to do, which is take care of a team much worse than you. But then those final two minutes happened, and it looked like the Niners were trying to choke the game away. So I think I have to put them fourth on this scale just because it ended up being a one-score game that had no business being a one-score game. But again, take out those final two minutes, and it was another really impressive win. 
Yeah, and that's why I have the 49ers there. It's the only one you and I agree on that theirs was the fourth most impressive win because they allowed Detroit to get back into the game. Quarterbacked by Jared Goff. Come on, are you kidding me? Offensively, things worked really well for San Francisco yesterday, despite not getting a couple of people involved. They did lose Raheem Mostert to a knee injury, which is not good news. I've actually got the Seahawks at the top of this. I've got the Cardinals in three, Jamie. I know they put up all the fantasy numbers. Tennessee, I had more questions about them. Chandler Jones wrecked shop, but I've got the Cardinals in number three. I've got the Seahawks. They never looked like they were in danger of losing that game. It was in their control the entire time. Rams felt very similar, and the only thing I discount them for is that they were at home. Seattle was on the road, so I give the nod to the Seahawks there. But I've got the Cardinals in number three, the 49ers in four. All right, the NFC North, it lost every single game yesterday. Worst loss to best loss. So I think the Packers are the worst, right? 38-3. to I know it's on the road. I know it's against a great defense. But when you're a team with Super Bowl aspirations and your offense looks like that, that is an awful, awful, awful loss. Next worst, I'll give to the Vikings. And, hey, maybe this is a big turnaround season for the Cincinnati Bengals and Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow looked good. Jamar Chase was out there making plays after we were all making fun of him for not being able to tell the difference between a college and an NFL ball or saying they're too different or whatever the case is. He was out there making plays, but still, you lose against the Bengals. You don't feel great about yourself right now. Bears, it's not a good loss. I mean, you got blown out, but you were on the road. I think the Rams are really, really good. I can't say I'm that surprised by it. And then I have the Lions. Okay, it was ugly, but you at least made it close. You at least made it respectable. You fought to the final whistle. That's maybe about what you can ask for from the Lions this year, especially when they're going up against a team like the Niners. So from worst to best, I go Packers, Vikings, Bears, Lions. All right, we're lockstep there, so I won't argue on any of that. I will get to one final category here before we turn our attention to the Canadian Football League. Oh, by the way, pretty interesting quote coming out of Tennessee today. I will tell you about that in a second. All five rookie quarterbacks drafted in the first round. They all played yesterday. I want you to rank their debuts. Who had the best debut from the rookie pivots, and then who was last in that category? So I'll go with Mac Jones as the best because he... You know, he loses the game, but he did what the team asked him to do and kept it close. And that's not always easy for a rookie. And, yeah, you think he's in a pretty good situation there with Bill Belichick and the offense and the pieces they have on defense. But I'll go with Mac Jones, number one. Number two, I have Zach Wilson. Showed some flashes. Again, made some mistakes. But as a rookie in his debut, I thought, okay, you you can live with that. Trevor Lawrence, I have number three. You know, we talked about it earlier in the show with Dom Cosentino. Really hard to judge what he's doing. He throws the three touchdowns, but also the three picks. I don't know. It's such a mess in Jacksonville. It's hard to argue. But I did have to have him ahead of Trey Lance and Justin Fields, who round out the pack. Trey Lance throws the touchdown. That's awesome. It was just such a limited role for him in his first game. Same thing with Justin Fields, that or, that they kind of have to be four and five for me. But at the top three, I'll go Mac Jones, Zach Wilson, Trevor Lawrence. Yeah, I will flip two and three. I've got Lawrence ahead. I know he threw the three picks, but he was asked to do so much. They were down 14 nothing yep. so early in that game that what's the guy supposed to do? A couple of the picks were pretty ugly. I will discount him there. Wilson didn't make as many egregious mistakes, but he looked like it was just deer in the headlights in the first half of that game. I was encouraged by what I saw in the second half, but incomplete work. But, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Lance and Fields, we just didn't see enough of them. Though what we did see was... Just fine. Thank you very much. Lance throws a touchdown. Fields runs a touchdown in. There's not going to be a lot of pressure after that game to start Trey Lance in San Francisco. There's going to be a lot of pressure in Chicago. There's going to be a lot of pressure in Chicago this week to start 
Justin Fields. All right, quickly, the quote coming out of Tennessee. Julio Jones yesterday got the 15-yard unnecessary roughness penalty when he took a swing at Cardinals cornerback Byron Murphy. Mike Vrabel, critical mistake. That's absolutely nothing that we coach or teach. So that would fall into the category of doing dumb, dumb-ish that hurts the team right there in bold letters. It goes from third and one to third and 16. Calling out Julio wow. Jones after the debut. After week one, that is direct and strong from Mike Vrabel. I love it. John Hodge, direct and strong, and he'll come next on this program, bringing the CFL heat right here with on Rinto and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. It is one of the worst ways to lose a game. Like, there's lots of bad ways to lose a game, Jamie, but what I saw Friday night between the Ticats and the Argos, that is one of the most soul-crushing ways to lose because you feel like you've done so much to grab it. The Argos were in control of that game for the bulk of it. Hamilton loses its quarterback. Dane Evans goes down, and we'll see what happens moving forward here. Concussion issue, potentially. We will see. They tie things up in the final two minutes, or so they thought. Their kicker hits the upright with his point after, and they lose 17-16. I can't tell you how demoralizing it is, man. I can't. It is so bad. Like you say, all right, we've done this. We're going to pull this one out. We're going to head to overtime. Who knows? Maybe we get the – nope. You hit the upright, and that's it. And it's way harder to do than most people think. Kick a football through the uprights, but it seems so simple. I always – whenever that happens in any sort of significant moment, I always think back to the New Orleans Saints play, right, where they run the lateral play to, uh, to, to, you know – they think tie the game, keep their playoff hopes alive in the last game of the season. Miracle play to get the touchdown. And then you miss the point after. And it was all for nothing. This incredible moment that you thought you had just earned actually counts for nothing. That's what always jumps to mind for me. The River City Relay, as it were called. Yep. And there were a couple of Canadians involved. Jerome Pathon was the guy who was on the business end, scored the touchdown. He was the last guy to touch the ball as they did the whole lateral play at the end of the game. And then Mitch Berger was holding for John Carney, who missed the extra point and he shanked it. And this isn't where we're at right now with the CFL or NFL, where you're back behind the 30 and you're kicking it. We're talking, it was the old yes. chip shot, no problem. Everybody makes those. Why are we even doing this, Convert? Yeah, it was what, like a, an 18, 19-yard try, something like that, right? When you added it all up, it was not much. And, you know, a success rate of over 99% in the NFL, it's a complete, you know, perfunctory, no, we, we don't even have to watch. We know it's going through. Nope, not in that circumstance. I had to live it, and we all hold our high school losses somewhere painful in our hearts. Jamie, that was my final high school football game. We threw a touchdown pass with 10 seconds left to, to what? To tie the game. Actually, we just had to kick the convert to win. We missed the convert. Oh. And we lost in overtime. And that was it. That was So that one's a little near and dear to my heart when I see what happened to Hamilton on the weekend and the way that that one went down. At least in high school, and it doesn't make it easier, and the emotions are so raw because you're in high school, but there's probably less of an expectation that it's a sure thing from the kicker, right? I think that's the hardest part is when you just have it – mentally in your mind you know somebody scores a touchdown that's seven points we don't even have to think about it that's just seven points and you almost you move beyond even thinking about the kick I would think in high school football you probably understand there's a chance your kicker is missing it right no no we didn't no we didn't think about it that way we didn't think about it that way at all we didn't and we didn't give the guy a hard time but the only thing he did for our particular team was kick 
that's when it's a little worse, right? Because in high school, yes. usually it's like, yep. oh, well, our safety also happens to be our best kicker, so we're going to let him do the try. They don't do that in Hamilton. Tough way to lose a game, tough way to lose their quarterback. Lots to talk about in CFL circles. John Hodge of Three Down Nation joins us here today on Rental and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. John, thanks again for making time. How are you today? I'm doing great, boys. How about yourselves? We are doing well. Ticats fans would have thought they'd be saying the same at this point of the season. It hasn't gone that way. Now they lose another quarterback. How much trouble is Hamilton in right now? Well, you know, I, I think if, if you're the Ticats, there's, there's two silver linings at play here. One is that, you know, the, the East division is, is still really tight. Yeah, you're two and three. You know, this is a team that only lost three games in all of 2019. So it's a rough start. Um, but you're only one game out of first place. You know, their point differential is still pretty good. They're only minus six in those three contests. Montreal has only played four games, period, and you still have them on your schedule later in the year. So that's one silver lining to me is the standings, you know, you're not where you thought you'd be, but you're not out of the race. The second thing is uh, there is at least a chance, we don't know what it is yet, but there's a chance that Jeremiah Mazzoli will be ready to play this weekend, which obviously – you know, uh, Dane Evans had started the last couple games, but, you know, Jeremiah Mazzoli has been an MOP candidate in this league before. He did not look great the first two weeks when he started, but, you know, they also had a ton of injuries along the offensive line, and they started in Winnipeg and then Saskatchewan. You know, those are two dominant front sevens. I don't think he was the, the main root cause of their problems there, so... Yes, the Ticats, not out of the gate the way they envisioned, but I think there are still some reasons for optimism in Tigertown. The Argos are out of the gate better than most envisioned, and they're back in the news today because they've got a couple of coaches, their DB coach, their defensive coordinator, who are on a leave of absence from the team because of MLSC's vaccination policy, and now news coming out that Chris Jones is coming back to the CFL. How big of a story is this for this league, for that team? I mean, it's a huge story. I mean, Toronto has a very young uh, head coach, Ryan Dinwiddie's in his first year there. And let's not forget when he was when he was hired as the head coach there, he he didn't even have coordinator experience. This was a guy who basically had made his career in Calgary as as a quarterbacks coach. So he comes in as a young head coach. He picks a first time defensive coordinator in Glenn Young. Glenn Young coaches the first five games and. Toronto's defense has been their strengths. I mean, they're, they're first place in the East, but that team is number one right now against the run. They're number four against the pass. And they've had, I mean, they've got a ton of former NFL talent on that team. I mean, Sean Oakman kind of had his coming out game this week. A uh, guy who before running into legal problems at, uh, at Baylor University was thought to be a, a first round NFL draft pick. Uh, years and years ago so that that defense has gelled quickly and all of a sudden now you're basically ripping out all of the infrastructure that made that work yes uh, Richard Stubler who's been in the CFL seemingly forever something like 30 years of of coaching experience uh, I think he's been a DC for 25 years of that yes he was around as a consultant he's going to be calling the plays uh, this week against Saskatchewan but yes I mean if you're if you're the Argos Right, they came into the season, in my opinion, with as much talent as anybody, and all of a sudden, you know, it was just a matter of well, can it gel? And the answer was yes, it's gelled really well, and now they're uprooting everything. So it's a big story, certainly, with Chris Jones uh, coming back. He's resigned from his position at the head coach at South Pittsburgh High School. 
uh, where he's from and, and from what I understand has made his off season home for a long time. So it's uh, certainly uh, a big story. And Hey, wouldn't it have been nice if he could actually coach this week? He can't because he's crossing the border. He's got a quarantine. He's got to have a two negative CPR or a PCR test, but man, Chris Jones going back to Saskatchewan. That would have been a fun storyline. It looks like we'll have to wait another week to see that. Yeah, that would have been pretty interesting, John. And I wanted to ask you about the team that Saskatchewan just lost a couple of times to. Winnipeg, of course, completing the sweep, back-to-back wins against the Riders, and both of them in pretty comfortable fashion. What was the most impressive aspect of Winnipeg uh, sweeping its its rival there for you? To me, I I think it was the, the most impressive aspect was was the way in which the defense was able to shut down Cody Fajardo. I mean, Cody Fajardo came into, you know, week five in the Labor Day Classic looking like the front runner for MOP. He had four touchdowns, just one pick. You know, the Riders had won three pretty decisive games over BC, Hamilton, and Ottawa. Yet in six quarters of action against Winnipeg, he throws for, you know, a little under 400 yards, zero touchdowns, four picks. They harassed him. They got to him. They solved Saskatchewan's offensive line that had actually held up surprisingly well, given the injuries that they had early in the season. And uh, when you can make Cody Fajardo not just look pedestrian, but make him look poor, right? He, he acknowledged that he had the worst game of his professional career in the Labor Day Classic, which given you know the friendly confines of Mosaic Stadium and the talent they have around him was, was a surprise. So to me, you know, if there were any questions about Winnipeg's defense, uh, they've allowed by far the fewest points in the CFL, which is which is quite remarkable. They've allowed 76 yards. The next lowest total is BC at 88. But the Bombers have played six games. Lots of teams have, o- have only played five. Montreal's played four. Winnipeg has still allowed 21 fewer points than Montreal, and they've played two more games. I mean, this is this is the CFL we're talking about. This is this is not the NFL where, you know, lower scoring games are, are more commonplace. This is the CFL. Yes, scoring is down a little bit on average this season, but still, relative to all the other teams, Winnipeg's defense, you know, came into that back-to-back dominant, and, and that trend continued in a way that uh, I don't think many people were, were anticipating. Well, and John, you mentioned that Cody Fajardo was possibly leading the most outstanding player race until he ran into that Winnipeg defense for a couple of weeks. Right now, who is ahead of the pack for the MOP distinction for you? Well, three down, we've we've started doing MOP watch every week. We do our top 10 picks for, for who the MOP could be. Right, right now, I think it has to be Zach Kolaris, and that might just be because oftentimes in professional football – we kind of default to picking the uh, the MOP or MVP as the quarterback on the best team. But with that being said, I mean, Kolaris, he doesn't have a ton of passing yardage, which is probably the knock that you could have on him. He's a little shy of 1,500 yards in six games. Uh, but that said, he's completing 69% of his passes. He's got a 3-to-1 touchdown-to-interception ratio. His efficiency rating is is super high. It's, it's, it's I believe, second in the CFL among full-time starters and I just have been so impressed with the way in which he's he's managed to turn back the clock I mean Zach Kolaris would have been the CFL's MOP in 2015 when he was back in Hamilton had he not suffered a torn ACL and you know when he came back from that and was in Saskatchewan for a few years he was a fine player but he, he did not resemble the high-flying Zach Kolaris that we saw 
in 2015, where he was able to move the move the football with his legs, buy time, be elusive in the pocket, and I don't think opposing defenses, frankly, thought that he still had that in him, and uh, he has this year. He's he's been very dynamic behind the line of scrimmage, making making opponents miss. He doesn't take off beyond the line of scrimmage a whole heck of a lot. He's only got about one or one or two carries a game thus far, but uh, he doesn't have to necessarily take off and try to get positive yardage to do damage with his legs. And the way that he's able to buy time and then throw the football down the field uh, while moving his legs, he made some throws in the banjo bowl that were just unbelievable, right? He's, he's coming across left to right and he's able to locate the receiver, you know, who's fouled the hole in the zone 17 yards down the field, but it's the CFL, right? So it's a 45 yard throw to the sideline and he's just putting it in these little pockets where only the receiver can get it. I, I thought his accuracy, particularly on the run buying time I, I, to me, he's, he's my pick for MOP, but you know, there's a reason we do a top 10. It's still a tight race. It's, it, it, it could go to any number of players. It's still early, but to me, that that's my pick. Zach Kolaris, Winnipeg Blue Bombers. In conversation with John Hodge of three down nation today, right here on rental and sermon with Jamie Dodd. If you've been listening to Dave Dickinson the last few weeks, I know you have, but I'm talking to our listeners here. He said the same thing. We need a pass rush. Well, they got one on Saturday, and not surprisingly, they got back in the win column. They also got their quarterback back under center in Bo Levi Mitchell. What part of Calgary's defensive effort did you think was something that would be repeatable as opposed to just a one-game blip? Well, that's that's a fantastic question. I mean, it's... uh... That I, I had a conversation with somebody before Calgary's recent win over Edmonton, which, which really, let's be honest, was a must win. If you look at the schedule that Calgary mm-hmm. has coming up, they've got Saskatchewan, I think it's three times over the next five weeks. They, they've got a tough road to hoe here. And had they fallen to one and five or one and four, I think they would have been in, uh, in serious trouble. So, you know, to to see the uh, to see Sean Lemon turn back the clock a little bit. Let's let's not forget Sean Lemon. I mean, he started in training camp with Edmonton, got cut, signed with Calgary, but he's been on and off the practice roster. He's been on and off their 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 starting lineup. I mean, uh, they didn't cut him. You know, they kept him around, but he hadn't done a whole heck of a lot, and and he was kind of a periphery guy. And for him to turn back the clock and have three sacks, one forced fumble. Stephen Banks finally popped off the page. He's a rookie who I think, you know, a lot of people were excited about during during training camp and, you know, nothing really happened much in the first little bit. And and talking to people around the league, that, that was kind of the area of concern. I think coming into the season, some people, myself included, had questions about Calgary's receiving core. I think some people had questions about Calgary's offensive line. But I've talked to a few people who say, look, like this defensive line has taken the biggest fall. And, and, it's, under, it's understandable why. I mean, Calgary graduates a, a, a pass rusher to the NFL seemingly every year, whether it's Cordero Law, uh, whether it's James Vodders or, or whoever. But to me, that, that's what you need. The, the middle two guys there, the DTs they have, Derek Wigan, I think is solid. Mike Rose is solid. But if they can get those ends firing, whether it's Banks, Lemon, or anybody else, um, to me, that that is what this team needs moving forward to continue getting that pressure off the edge. The final game of the week was a beatdown by the BC Lions of the Ottawa Red Blacks. I was at that game, and for the home crowd in Vancouver, 
it was pretty fun. First four possessions, the Lions score touchdowns, the last of which was 115 yards to the house from Lucky Whitehead on a missed field goal. Were you more impressed with what you saw from BC or just more dismayed with what you saw from the Ottawa Red Blocks? I realize I'm on Vancouver radio and I'm not trying to take anything away from BC's big win, but I'd have to opt for the latter. You know, Dom Davis has been in the CFL for a long time. I I think there's a misconception from a lot of people who think that Dom Davis is still a young developing quarterback. Well, this is a guy who was in camp with the Stampeders in 2015, gets cut, signs with Winnipeg. Like, Like Dom Davis is 32 years old and he's in his sixth CFL season. Like, there comes a time where as a player, you have to, you know what, or get off the pot. And, you know, if, if Dom Davis was ever going to be successful at the CFL, you know, he, he was not good in 2019, but, but there was a huge mess, right. As a receiving or as a, as an offensive coaching staff there, they lost Jamie Elizondo to the XFL. They were kind of filling that role by committee and, you know, Dom Davis's first real opportunity to start in the CFL. I, I was you know, there was a part of me admittedly hoping that with Paul Apple's calling the plays, he would go out there, make better decisions, use his legs, be accurate with the football. And he, he did throw for 300 yards, but I think that was more of a, more of a factor of him trying, you know, I think it was 50 pass attempts uh, rather than necessarily a reflection of how well he was playing. He only threw one pick, but uh, you know, you said you're at the game. Anybody who watched it saw there were probably three, four, potentially even five passes that he threw into harm's way, and that was really disappointing. You know, we, we obviously didn't see enough from Matt Nichols through the first four games for Ottawa. I was hoping, you know, if, if Dom Davis was ever going to happen, this is the moment, right? He's had a month to sit behind Matt Nichols, you know, develop, learn the system, and, and he looked he looked the same as he did in 2019. So, you know, full credit to the Lions for the win. You can only you can only beat the team that's in front of you. But for me, it was a really disappointing game for Ottawa. And I don't know how they don't make major changes. I know they've signed Kenny Stafford, veteran CFL receiver, who was cut by Edmondson during training camp. You know, but but Kenny Stafford is not alone going to fix <laughs> that team right now. They're 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 a really bad football team at the moment. I was expecting, and maybe we'll still see them, but I was expecting more wholesale changes there, particularly with them on a bye in week seven. Well, and John, as you mentioned, look, it's not coming against the strongest competition from Ottawa, but Michael Riley had a re- another really strong game throwing the football for the BC Lions. Do you get the sense that we're kind of getting the the complete version of Michael Riley that BC was hoping to get when they initially signed him? Obviously, in 2019, it didn't entirely work out because of offensive line problems, but it feels like finally this is the version of Michael Riley that the Leos were hoping to get. I agree with that. I think I think Riley has taken an impressive step forward this season. Um, the O-line, yes, is a factor. To me, I, I think it's more game planning than personnel at this point because you know really only one change was made along the offensive line in bc that was to add Riker matthews and free agency from hamilton to fill that right tackle spot and he's been out I, I think he's dressed for one game this season so the offensive line is pretty young joel figueroa has missed time as well at left tackle you know the old line i don't think is necessarily better i think what what the difference in bc is is there's a better, a better understanding of, of protection as a, as a unit. I think Michael Riley's done a bit of a better job at getting rid of the football. You know, Riley, you know, the example I'll give in 2018, he was in Edmonton. 
they gave up, I think it was the most sacks in the CFL. They gave up something like 58 sacks in 18 games. The following year, they've got the same five starters on the offensive line. Trevor Harris comes in, and I believe the number went from 58 to 18. Like it was literally cut by something like 70%. Why? Well, because Trevor Harris is maybe better than anybody in the league at getting rid of the football, making those lightning fast decisions. Michael Riley is the opposite. He loves to stand in the pocket, stand in the pocket, stand in the pocket, anticipate the big hit and throw it over the top to Brian Burnham for 50 yards. So, and I'm not saying that's not fun. It's really fun to watch and it's exciting when Brian Burnham makes those catches, but it's maybe not sustainable. We saw that in 2019, he threw more picks. He took more hits this season. He's been excellent in that department. He's got a six to one touchdown interception ratio. He's not been putting the ball in harm's way. He's making better decisions. He's making them faster. And I think that's a big part of the reason why BC is, is, is above 500 right now and, and why they were able to put up 45 points on, uh, on the lowly Red Blacks. John, great conversation as always. Another exciting week lies ahead. Thank you very much for your time today and enjoy the football here in week number seven coming up. My pleasure, guys. Anytime. That is John Hodge of Three Down Nation. I'm with John quite frankly, on this, and I know it's a dissenting opinion after a 45-13 win, and you shouldn't pour over it too critically. I didn't think Mike Riley was terribly sharp, like not at his sharpest. I was at that game, and I know what he is capable of, Jamie. He underthrew a couple of deep balls, got some good catches. Lucky Whitehead's gone for another one if he throws it a little bit farther. He threw a pick in the end zone that that's one that Mike will be kick Michael, I should say, will be kicking himself for quite some time because it's not a terribly hard read and hit a wide open guy in the flats. But their playmakers made plays. Ottawa is a bad operation, man. That is a bad, bad football team. Yeah, and they looked it against the Lions in a serious, serious way. And you just look at the standings, the point differential, whatever you want. It all points to the same picture. They are the worst team in the CFL right now. I don't think it's particularly close. Yeah, they got to win this season, and there's probably a lot of people going, how did they manage that? They shouldn't have won that. <laughs> they shouldn't have won the game in week one. They shouldn't have. Like, their offense, no. when you play in this league, and, and you heard what John said about defense is ruling early now, the offense is starting to come back, but the CFL is meant to be a wide-open passing game where you have the opportunity to move the football, complete a lot of passes. Like, it's set up for that to happen. If you don't have good quarterback and your receiving core is underwhelming, that's a really bad combination, James. Yes, not great. Not ideal in a league where passing is very, very important. Yeah, you'd like to, man, you wonder if they'd like a do-over on that Nick Arbuckle decision. They had him, then they let him go, and they brought oh. It's going to be a long year. It's going to be a long year, I feel, for Paul Apolis, Mike Benavides, and anybody with that organization right now. All right, we're going to turn you over to Hockey Central in Calgary right now. That's on 960. We will rejoin you tomorrow morning on this program. Another hour to go. I actually have a CFL slash NFL comparison to make, Jamie. It's lunchtime for a lot of people. You can tell me if I'm out to lunch on this next on Rental and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. Was that a Faber selection or was that a Balak selection? I need to know. Yeah, it's a favor selection there. Well done, man. Wow. Well done. I was going to say, for me. it didn't feel like it really hit like I wanted it to there, but yeah. it's a great <laughs> song in the end. It's okay. I'm a fan. I'm a Mr. Jones fan. Well done. Maybe we could have played that going into the CFL segment with Chris Jones coming back, but I like what you're thinking, Faber. I ran into Faber, by the way, 
on Saturday night, his first Lions game live and in person, and it certainly worked for the home side. Jamie, I'm guessing that the new owner of the BC Lions, Amar Doman, is probably reaching out at some point today to Chris Faber, who is training today on our show, and he's with Greg Ballack back in Mission Control, probably going to reach out to Faber and say, can we make you a season ticket holder? It's on us. <laughs> the lucky charm, is that the idea? Yeah, there? that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, hey, it worked. If it works, why uh, why not keep it going? I mean, Faber pretended he didn't know me, tried to keep moving on, said I've got autographs to sign, but then eventually, you know, after me pulling out his coattails, he, he took a little time. We did run into each other. It was great to be back at a live sporting event on the weekend. It's Scott Rental. It's Jamie Dodd. One final hour to go here. Jamie, the Kansas City Chiefs have it. The Canucks actually of 2011 had it. And we're seeing a team that's getting it right in front of our eyes. What do you associate with that 2011 Canucks team? They were really good, but I'm talking from a feeling standpoint around that group. Well, are you going for the kind of inevitability feeling? Is that is that the idea here? Because it did seem like through parts of that regular season. Now, look, it's the Canucks, so they don't have the history of winning, so they don't have it from that sense. But it just felt like everything they touched turned to gold in that 2011 season. Yeah, so that's part of it. And I am talking about an inevitable feeling within a game. When the Chiefs right. have the ball in the fourth quarter, you feel it's inevitable they're going to make a play to win the game. The Vancouver Canucks of 2011 absolutely had that. They'd go into the third period down a couple of goals, down a goal, tied up, whatever it was, and you'd say, they're going to find a way. Their power play's too good. Somebody's going to score they'll get the job done because they showed it to you time and time again. And when you keep recreating that belief, not only internally, but externally for your fan base as well, it just builds into this sense of entitlement's the wrong word, but inevitability might be the right one, Jamie. You just feel like, hey, they're going to get the job done. You're actually more surprised when it doesn't happen. Yeah. Well, there's an expectation, right? There's an expectation that you are going to find a way to make that big play, to make that key play at the key time. You're, I, I know we're going to move on to the football element of this, but just kind of the defining example of what you're talking about with those 2011 Canucks, I would say was in game five against the Sharks, right? Where they're down late, but hey, the power play gets out there. Ryan Kessler finds a way to tip the goal in to send it to overtime, and we know what happened. And I remember watching that game, and you're exactly right. Now, it helped that they were up big in the series already, so it wasn't a crucial game. But still, it's a potential clincher. They're down late. And I remember watching with my friends. There was no sense of panic. There was no great anxiety. It was, okay, you know what? They've got a really good shot to do this, and they paid off on that. And it's tougher to do in hockey because in football, if you get the ball and you've got a quarterback that you believe in, if you've got a Patrick Mahomes, if you've got, despite what happened yesterday, an Aaron Rodgers or a Russell yeah. Wilson, you feel really confident as a fan base. Okay, we're going to go get ours, and you're really surprised when it doesn't happen. I'm actually not going to football. I'm talking about the Jays right now. That's what it feels like with them yep. right now. And it's been a few games in the making. I go back to that Oakland game that they won 11-10. I referenced it with Joe Siddle earlier in the program. The belief that came from it and the reference points you get along the way. One of the Jays' flaws for a lot of this season was that they couldn't get it done in the 8th or ninth inning. And you'd look at the stats for some of the other teams. The Seattle Mariners are one of the best in Major League Baseball. That they'd come up clutch at clutch moments and they'd get the home run when they need it and screw the run differentials, screw some of the statistics that tell you this is a mirage. The Mariners have found a way for a lot of this season. The Jays went through a long time this year, Jamie, where they didn't get that. And here during the month of September, 
they're finding it. And it doesn't matter that it's against the Baltimore Orioles in the last couple of instances because it's this reaffirmation of belief in the clubhouse that we're going to find a way. And tonight it might be Vladdy, and it might be Springer tomorrow. The day after that, it might be Bo Bichette. They've had enough people step up, Marcus Semien included, who have done it for them that there is a belief with this team. I've talked about for a long time. There's a bit of an it factor here, and it's not quite 2015, but we're we're closing in on that. Yeah, they are, and it's what you mentioned at the end there that I think really does it for me with the Jays, which is it's not one or two guys. They have so many dangerous hitters that pretty much whatever part of the lineup is coming up, you feel like there's a chance for them to do something special. You know, I talked about it with Joe Siddle when he was on earlier with us about just just the difference George Springer makes in that regard, just having that extra elite bat and how he's come through in big moments for them. But, I mean, look at what Lourdes Gurriel Jr. is doing for them right now. He is on fire, and he's a guy who really struggled at the start of the season, but then all of a sudden out of nowhere, okay, you look at that top five with Springer, Simeon, Guerrero, Bichette, Hernandez. That's awesome. You know you can count on all of those guys. Then out of nowhere, Lourdes Gurriel Jr. is – playing some of his the best baseball of his career, hit another grand slam over the weekend. You've got just that no, another hot, dangerous bat, and it just doesn't feel like there's a lot of pitching staffs that can get through that lineup repeatedly unscathed. There's too much talent for that, right? So if you're into the late part of the game and no one has done something yet, yes, there's that expectation, well, well they're not going to be completely shut out in this game. They're not going to be completely shut down. They're too good for that. Even a guy like Alejandro Kirk, you saw what he did in that Yankees series. Yep. He came up with big hits, and that permeates throughout the lineup. You probably don't have the most confidence in a guy like Danny Jansen, but we've seen Danny Jansen come up with big hits at times, even though overall ah, he's not great in that regard. That's why he's hitting ninth, but it fuels the rest of the lineup, and it's what the Jays have going for them right now. It's what the Yankees do not have going for them right now. Maybe it looked like they were getting it back last night when Stanton hit that home run, but Lindor one-ups him. The Mets get over on the Yankees. You know, by feel, it feels like the Jays are going to get into the playoffs, but this yep. is obviously a big series in cementing that. If they play well against the Rays here, and and because of what happened on the weekend with their results and the com- combination of what happened with the Yankees and the Red Sox, this isn't must-win, got to sweep the Rays, or even necessarily win this series. They'll still be in good shape if they get at least one of these games, no matter what happens with those other teams. But if they find a way to win this series, Jamie, it's just going to feel like, okay, it's theirs to lose now. Boston's in a bad way with its health right now. And and out of the three, it's the least talented group overall. It is. Like, just, that's a fact. Boston played its butt off during the first half of this season. But if you compare the three groups, I think it's the – I think it's the least talented team. Now, they might be a better team, in quotation marks, than the New York Yankees, who yes. I don't know if I've seen a team run as hot and as cold as this team oh, does. Man. It's wild. And I get, look, that's what happens to a certain extent when your lineup is virtually all built on three true outcome guys, right? Strikeout, walk, and home run guys. I think that's just kind of built in to the style of team that the Yankees are. But yes, it does feel like now this this weekend was the turning point where you look at it and say, okay, the Blue Jays should make the postseason, right? It's not, uh, can they find a way to, you know, get to this mark down the stretch and hope the Yankees lose a little bit and hope the Red Sox lose a little enough, lose enough. You know, they're in control of their own destiny. They're in control of their own fate. And yeah, they've got these two big series against Tampa. They're going to be really difficult. 
But you're right, Scotty. They don't have to go out there and be world beaters against the Rays now. They just have to play well. They just have to not, you know, fall flat on their face in these series, and they'll be okay, and they should still find a way to get in. And, you know, just quickly back to your point about how the lineup is performing, that sense of inevitability right now. You talked about the guys at the bottom of the order, you know, Danny Jansen, Lamb, Kirk's a little bit above that, but you know the guys, I mean, who are hitting down in the eighth and ninth spots. Yeah, exactly. And I think the thing for them, you, you look at the position they're in now with everyone above them hitting so well. I feel like there's just so little pressure on those guys because they know, okay, if I just keep the line moving, if I get on base and turn this over, all of a sudden it's Springer, it's Simeon, it's Vladdy coming up next with guys on base that the pitcher has to deal with, right? So I think that just must be an incredible position for the bottom of the lineup guys to be in where you're not thinking I have to go out there and hit for extra bases. I don't have to try to go long. I don't really have to make anything happen myself. Just keep the line moving, turn it over, and those guys will take care of business. The 22-7 win pops off the page, and you compare it to NFL scores and all of those different things, but it's this pair, these pair of 11-10 victories that stand out to me because that Oakland game looked like it was in the bank for the A's, and it turns that series completely with J- the Jays getting that victory. And I've referenced it a lot of times. Even the 11-10 victory in the first half of the double dip on Saturday, the Jays lose for the first time in September on Friday night, and it's it's against the Orioles, so it feels like yep. three losses at the time, even though they had just swept the New York Yankees. They come back, and they're trailing all game. They're down 7-3. They're down 10-5, and it feels like, are you kidding me? They're going to open yep. this four-game set with the Orioles with back-to-back losses, and they're going to try to salvage this series and they come back and find a way to win that game. And then they're getting no hit through six in the second half of the double dip. And they put up 11 in the top of seven, which nobody saw. Coming. Like, I was satisfied as a Jays fan with the two-run shot by Bichette. I was like, okay, that's fine. Great. They, can, they can close yeah. this out now, win 2-1. I'm good with that. They put up 11 runs that inning. <laughs> Just madness, man. It was a wild, wild weekend. It's one of the more bizarre series that I can pos- that I can remember, really. And especially because the, of the discrepancy in talent between the two teams. You know what I mean? It, it doesn't feel like a series between the Orioles and the Jays should be that eventful because they're so far apart in the standings and the Orioles have nothing to play for. But, I mean, starting with the manager on Friday making just bizarre <laughs> comments to Robbie Ray when he was pitching, and then it really did feel like in game one of that doubleheader that the Jays were somehow going to let a four-game series against the Orioles derail their season like that's what it felt like just emotionally in the moment and obviously even if they drop that game you know their season isn't over but it really felt like they were going to undo all of the progress they have made against the A's against the Yankees against the friggin Baltimore Orioles and they needed that win they needed that George Springer home run and those four runs in the seventh inning but just from Friday through Sunday the four games as bizarre as I can remember between two teams it's pretty divided loyalties out here, and that's not to say there aren't Yankees fans and Red Sox fans sprinkled in among. We have a Giants fan who texts the, texts the yep. show quite often, but it's pretty divided loyalties between the Jays and the Mariners out here in Vancouver. Get in on this conversation, 650-650, Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. But right now, Jamie, when you're on a roll like this, even the casual can get on board. Do you remember when the Colorado Rockies went through their September to remember and they won 21 of 22? It was just incredible, and they became a story for more than just Rockies fans. They were a story for the casual baseball fan, the casual sporting fan as well. I'm not saying the Jays are going to run off that, 
but they've got a feeling about them. They're fun. The Mariners have had a pretty good dose of that over the course of the season, as I mentioned, but I don't know, and this is where I want to hear from Mariners fans, does the history of not making the playoffs for the last 20 years make you feel like as good as this has been and as much fun as we've had and this is all above expectation, does it make you feel like ultimately we're going to miss by a game or by two games because that's how it always go, goes? Or do you feel like there is something special here as a Mariners fan? I'm going to be interested to hear from our Mariners fans who are listeners about that. But, you know, my perspective on this Mariners team is I think you have to recognize that they are extreme underdogs in this situation. And not that you have to be happy with just being close in September because, look, I get it. When you've missed the postseason for as long as the Mariners have, it's it's hard to be happy with that. It's hard to say, hey, at least we gave it a good run in September. But I do think it's legitimately impressive that these Mariners are where they are in September, given you know what people expected of them this year, given their run differential. They've found a way to battle and keep it close. I think they deserve praise for that, but I also understand why Mariners fans wouldn't want to be satisfied with that. It's 5 nothing for the Twins right now against the New York Let's Yankees. go. It's 5 nothing in the bottom of the fourth inning. The Twins are leading the Yankees. Can you imagine what talk radio is like oh, in that oh, city with that team right now? I've got a buddy. good friend of mine is a big Yankees fan. Like, the type of Yankees fan who sits outside at night and listens to games on the radio because loves consuming the games that way, not just when it's on television. He he texted me over the weekend because I gave him a hard time last night. And you tell me if this is okay or not. Like, we're we're close enough. I actually did this to Randeep as well. I took a picture <laughs> of my, my Blue Jays hat and shirt after last week against the Yankees, and I had a broom in my hand. I just texted him that. Right? Like, I was having a little bit of fun with it, right? And my buddy texted me back, and he said, we shouldn't talk for a while. I said, hey, after this J-Series, your schedule gets a little bit better. You, you'll probably be okay. He is just so disheartened right now. He's so dismayed with his baseball team. And as we've made the point before, there's nothing better in September when your team is going well in baseball because it's every single day. And there's nothing worse when it's going the other way because you have to live it time and time and time again. Yes, it's brutal. It's day after day after day. And this is a tough spot for the Yankees in particular because they have the quick turnaround here, right? I mean, they just lost to the New York Mets in extremely high-profile fashion on Sunday Night Baseball. And then you got to come right back this morning. I know it's afternoon there on the East Coast, but you're right back at it on Monday. I'm the early game because this is a rain delay makeup. And now you're the only game happening. And yeah, you are getting roughed up early by the Twins. The reaction... In New York, if the Yankees miss the playoffs, and really, let's face it, even if they back in and, let's say, lose in the wild card game, it's not going to do that much to change the reaction from Yankees fans because that's not the expectation with the Yankees. The expectation with the Yankees is get in and do some damage in the playoffs. But already, through this losing streak, the meltdown that I have seen from Yankees fans on Twitter, online, anywhere you want to look, has been tremendous, and it's just going to be out of control if after they built up all that huge, huge cushion, what were they, nine and a half games up on the Jays at the peak, and they've completely frittered it all away, that's a meltdown that would bring heat in any market. It's going to be at a completely different level in New York. Oh, and you always remember your bad beats. 
you always remember your bad yep. beats more than the good ones. You forget about the time that your team won eight of ten to get back into a playoff position. You needed that sort of surge. You always remember the bad ones. Jays fans of my vintage will never forget 1987. Never yep. will forget 1987, having the three-and-a-half game lead on the Tigers in the final week of the season and watching it get away. Because you always, always remember those. New York, by the way, it's being no hit by Minnesota. It's only four innings, so we're not on no-hitter alert yet. But it's not just that they're losing. They're being no hit no. right now by the Twins. Like, the Jays have the Twins seven more times on their schedule, and the Yankees have some Twins games. These are the ones that you're supposed to have. Yes, this is, you know, Yankees fans, I'm sure, have done what we're all guilty of, right? Where you look at the schedule coming up and you see a weaker team, a team way far down the standings, you just say, okay, that'll be a win. Yep, that's a win. No problem. I mean, the Jays did that with the Nationals earlier, right? And then they lost two on the road in Washington. It happens. You get it. It's baseball, but it's just so devastating, especially when your team needs a win. Like, the Yankees are reeling. They are absolutely reeling. They need a win, and it's not even close in this game right now. Oof. This text comes in. Actually, it's a tweet from Coach Craig, who follows the program regularly. He says, Mariners' motto is to be relevant until the Seahawks' season starts. Honestly, the Mariners are fighting in the wrong weight class. This past weekend, they lost games to Arizona that should end the season, but they will scrap back and miss by one game. There's the we-know-our-fate-we-know-how-this-ends attitude from a Mariners fan out there. This text comes in about the wild card, saying it should be three games. The Jays will have to face Cole or Sale in the wild card. Maybe I don't have a problem with the one-game wild card, and I understand no. the argument against it. Listen, if you want to avoid the wild card, win your division. That goes for the Jays, the Yankees, the Red Sox, whomever. Win your division. Yep. I like the fact that it forces teams to try to go get that Jamie because they know it lies ahead. That one game, anything can happen type scenario, which has made the drama of that game so much more intense. Yeah, that game is fantastic. So it's just a, it's a great television product, especially for casual audiences. So Major League Baseball loves it for that reason. But I, I am for anything that makes the regular season more important. And this does that. Yeah, it's a coin flip for those two teams. But as you said, Scotty, the answer is go win your division. You don't like the randomness? You don't like that aspect of it? There's a real simple solution. Win your division, then you don't have to deal with it. And, you know, as to the idea of, oh, well, they might have to face Garrett Cole or Chris Sale, okay, but they got Robbie Ray they can throw there. They actually have a really strong pitching staff that they can throw out there in that one-game playoff. And, I don't know, Garrett Cole and Chris Sale, the way they're both pitching right now, Garrett Cole less so, but Chris Sale doesn't scare me particularly. I, I could see the Jays roughing up Chris Sale in a one-game playoff. So, yeah, I get it. It's frustrating, but go win your division. Go win your division if you don't want to meet an ace in a one-game playoff. Chris Sale just went on the COVID list the other day, by the way. Like, yep. that's, that's part of the story in Boston with how that, that roster has been ravaged by COVID, so to speak, unavailability of some of their – better players also as for the hey should be a best of three do you remember last year that was over in a heartbeat that was a best of yes, three last year true. when they went to the expanded playoff format eight teams got in jays facing the rays that sucker was snuffed out faster than most one game series that has to be one of the like least impactful playoff appearances I can remember from a, a professional sports team. Like, will anybody in five or six years remember that the Blue Jays were twenty a twenty twenty playoff team? Right? It just feels it feels fake that it even happened because it was over so quickly. And the only way they will, Jamie, is if the likes of Bobachet, Vladdy Guerrero Jr. Right. say, you know what? 
getting beat the way we did. I know it was a shortened season, but just being in that atmosphere and getting beat by the Rays the way we did, that gave us some perspective on what we need to do. If we don't hear that, you're absolutely right. People will dismiss it in a heartbeat. Yeah, it'll go down just like the dustbin of history. Like, wait, what? What are you talking about? They played this playoff series against the Rays. What? I, don't, I have no memory of that. Like, I already find it hard to remember in some ways. I'm born in 67, have been a big Jays fan since 77. I can't remember having a weekend that fun, at least during the regular season. That is from East Van Tom. You can hit us up in the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox at any time throughout the course of the day. I still have that comparison to make. Jamie, you can tell me if I'm out to lunch or not. And we got to dig back into the story that a lot of people are talking about in the NHL today. That's next right here on Rinto and Sermon with Jamie Dodd. It's going to be a big story around hockey today, maybe moving forward. We'll see what other organizations do. It's Scott Rental. It's Jamie Dodd. One final segment. Get in. 650-650. That is the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. So Van Lefebvre, he is out on the bench with the Columbus Blue Jackets. Now, those of us who are double vaccinated say, well, I kind of saw it leading toward this. I understand there are many of you out there. I think it's a minority, but there are many of you out there who aren't for vaccination you believe in choice and you don't think there should be consequences but the vast majority of our listeners jamie i think is probably where you and i are on this you feel like you're doing the best thing for everybody by getting double vaccinated yeah that's that's really what it comes down to for me certainly sylvain lefebvre says i'm not getting vaccinated columbus blue kid blue jacket said well you're not gonna be able to perform your job at least not properly so we're gonna replace you that's what we're going to do. And Yarmo Kekalainen didn't make too many bones about it. Like, he didn't say, well, this was something we were hashing out for the last few days, and he kind of decided it. No, he made it pretty clear that this is a direct result of yep. Sylvain Lefebvre. He said, you know what? That's why we're making the change. And former Canucks Steve McCarthy is going to be the new assistant with the Columbus Blue Jackets replacing Sylvain Lefebvre in that capacity, and we're going to move from here. What's also interesting is this quote that Aaron Portsline tweeted out. Kekalainen said, refusing to get a vaccine, quote, makes it very, very hard for players to participate too, end quote, not just coaches. He was then asked, Jamie, if a player's refusal to get a vaccine could factor into roster decisions. He paused for a moment, then said, yes, I think it would, yeah. And, I mean, we've had a similar discussion in the NFL. Scotty Wright and, you know, Urban Meyer came under some heat, actually, from the PA for admitting that, yeah, you know what, we did take vaccination status into account when we were making some of our final cuts. And I guess in the NFL, because there was there is no mandate, they, they kind of wanted him to pretend that he didn't take it into consideration, even though, of course, you would. In the NHL, the situation and the drawbacks of not being vaccinated as a player, it would be literally impossible not to take it into account, really. When you just think of what that means for the travel situation going into games in Canada, you know, in the NFL, it's speculative, right? It's, okay, if you're not vaccinated, there's a chance you could be unavailable for games down the road, and we're going to take that into account. It's not speculative in the NHL, right? As things currently stand with all the information we have right now, if you are not vaccinated, there's going to be games on the schedule that you're unavailable for. That's just a fact right now with how things are laid out. So, yeah, that's going to be a major factor in how teams build their roster.
vaccine passport goes into effect today. So I think most people in this province know that if you are double vaccinated, get your vaccine passport because as of today, you can't go into a restaurant without one. You're not going to any of the sporting events like we had over the weekend. I did actually check the dates. I have mine. It was fairly simple to do. Yeah, you might have to wait in a queue online to get yours done, but it doesn't take that long. It's pretty simple. You just need your your health number, one of the dates you were vaccinated, and your birthday, and then it's done. You've got your QR code, and you can go. I didn't need it for the Whitecaps. I didn't need it for the Lions. That changes as of today in British Columbia, Jamie. And this is going to be a competitive disadvantage in other professions as well. It's not just going to be limited to the sports that we talk about all the time. We talked about this in great detail with the NFL. Look, you are putting your team in a worse spot, and everybody has their principles. Everybody does. But how many times have you heard from coaches, put the team before yourself? Like, put the team before yep. yourself. It's a question everybody has to ask themselves and wh- and to what extent they are willing to have their convictions. Is it, I'm against this, but if it's going to impact my life too much, I'm going to do it? Or is it, no, come hell or high water, I'm not doing it. Cost me what it costs me. I think it's that important. And that's kind of the choice that uh, the coach in Columbus made, right? That Sylvain Lefebvre made, right? It was, you know what? If it's going to cost me my livelihood, I understand that, or at least my livelihood in the sense of coaching in the NHL, but I'm still not willing to do that. I think that's going to be pretty rare. And I know we already have one example of it. Training camp hasn't opened yet. But realistically, when you think of the opportunity you're costing yourself and what you have to do to avoid that is, in my opinion, very, very minor. Doesn't really even fall into the category of an inconvenience, quite frankly. I think when it, when push comes to shove, you're going to see very, very few coaches and players go down that route because the NHL has made it extremely uncomfortable if you choose to do so. Well, and let's see what happens in our own industry, Jamie. There's a lot of questions for reporters, people who are on the beat about covering their team this year, about whether they're going to be allowed back in the locker room. We have already seen the edict from the NHL. If you're somebody who has to be within 6 to 12 feet, I believe it is, of of NHL personnel, which are players, coaches, you have to be double vaccinated or you're not getting that access. You're going to have to conduct your business through Zoom, which... People have had to do for the past year and a half, so they understand how to do it. It's possible to do, but there might come a point in time within an organization where the boss says, look, you're not getting some of the stories that some of these other people are getting, and we think it's because you're not getting the same access. We're going to have to give this role to somebody who is getting the same access. Well, we have heard time and time again from people on the beat, Scotty, about how incredibly frustrating it is to do their job over Zoom, right? And how much they lose in their coverage by not having regular access to the players, by not having the chance to have some of those, you know, casual, off the record, maybe not even about hockey, just about life conversations with players, with coaches that, you know, maybe they don't seem important in the moment, but they end up informing a great story that you do down the road. They've completely lost that opportunity. And yeah, it's going to be really, really difficult to do your job to the standards that others are doing if you choose not to have that access granted to you, which is really what you're doing, right? You're making the choice if you go down that that road to not have the same access that other reporters are going to have. This one from BP Mission: Hockey coaches, parents, guests, everyone above the age of 18 has to have a passport 
in mission, says BP. I'll take your word for it. I don't know that for a fact, but I will take your word for it. You're obviously involved in hockey in mission. This one from Hydro and Langley. I was at the Whitecaps game on Friday with my daughter, and a good friend of mine went to the Lions. I was at both, by the way, Hydro. I was talking to him about seating restrictions, which were in place on Friday night, but he said there were no seating restrictions at the Lions game. Any comments about that? I can't speak to whether there were specific seating restrictions or not at the Lions game. I know they were only allowed a certain number. The reported attendance was 12,552. I don't know with the suites and everything if they're allowed up to 14,700. I saw conflicting reports about that online. I didn't see that from BC Place. I didn't see that from the BC Lions. I will say that having been at both games, when I went to the Whitecaps game, Jamie, on Friday, the row behind us and the row in front of us didn't seem to have any tickets sold in it. Now, I can't say that that was every single section, right. but the section I was in seemed to have that. That didn't mean you weren't sitting beside somebody in your own row, but directly in front, directly behind where we were seated, there was nobody that was assigned those seats, or it didn't appear that anyway. Right. When I went to the Lions game on Saturday, well, there wasn't anybody sitting in front of me. There was a little further down in the row, so I don't know what the seating restrictions were. Obviously, they could only sell a certain amount of tickets in BC Place. I have no idea. I can't comment accurately on whether or not it was by row. If they did it by section, you're allowed this many people in a certain section. I don't know how they did it. I know that the capacity was capped, though. Yeah, and I, I have heard from some others about kind of confusion about, you know, the rules of congregation, congregating in the concourse and some of the other rules around it. Like, we all know the capacity rule and that theoretically there's a mask mandate in place as well. But I have heard similar things, right? Okay, we don't know exactly what the game plan is. I, I'm actually going to be really interested when we do get kind of official word on the Canucks plans for the beginning of the season and you know, how detailed are those plans? What exactly do they look like? Is it, is it, is it an every other row thing if it's, you know, 50% capacity to, to start? I think that's going to be fascinating when we do get more solid details from the Canucks. More vax shilling, says this next texter. What a shock. Listen, as it pertains to what we talk about here, and I've told you and I've told every other listener, you can choose what you put in your body, but there are consequences to every choice. And the NHL's made the consequences perfectly clear. You are at a competitive disadvantage as a hockey team if you are not vaccinated. That is a fact. I'm not sure why we're arguing about facts here, Jamie. Yes. No, it's it's 100% unavoidable. That That is true. That you are choosing to put yourself at a disadvantage. Ron the Barista says, Club 16 this morning required proof of double vaccinations. Many people were turned away. Most... Frustr- most were frustration, but it was there lost. Um, a lot more room to work out and work and move in the gym this morning, says Ron, the barista. That's how it's going to be. And I know that there are going yep. to be protests. And, Jamie, you've seen all of this stuff over, uh, over the Internet and on Twitter over the last few days about, well, the next part of the movement will be calling these restaurants and placing fake orders so that these restaurants lose a whole lot of money. Yeah, that's it. Let's punish the restaurants. They haven't lost enough yeah. during they haven't lost enough during the course of this pandemic. Their business hasn't been impacted very much. Let's cost them some money because it's their policy. No, it's not their policy. They are just required yeah, no. to enforce what is happening in this province. Well, this is coming from the same group of people that thought it would be a hot idea to protest outside of hospitals. So <laughs> I mean I'm I'm not really Unfortunately, there is not a lot of capacity for them to shock or disappoint me at this point. Because once you do that, you've completely lost the plot. Yeah. 
You want to protest peacefully? Agree or dis? I don't care if I agree or disagree with your point. Protest peacefully. Don't block hospitals where people need critical life-saving equipment and doctors and nurses and people going to cancer treatments. Like, come on, let's have some common sense here. It's extremely, extremely selfish. It's Scott Rintoul's Jamie Dodd. Let's move on from that. Let's talk about something a little more fun. There was a lot of it yesterday in the National Football League, Jamie. I know you've waited breathlessly for this comparison, and you tell me if I'm out to lunch or not. I'm not saying, and this is for an afternoon show bit if they want to use it, I'm not saying that the guy I'm about to mention was as fast as Kyler Murray. But I do wonder watching Kyler Murray and the way he plays football, and it's fun. It's not as effective as some other quarterbacks in the NFL yet, but boy, is it fun. I wonder if that's what it could have been had the rules been different and the National Football League been more accepting of Doug Flutie when he came out of Boston College. Jamie, I watch the joy. I watch the just sheer uniqueness with which Kyler Murray plays, some of the moves he makes, and I saw stuff like that from Doug Flutie. I'm not saying that Flutie's as fast. He's not quite as fast, not quite as quick as Kyler Murray. But remember, the people chasing Doug Flutie also were not quite as fast as the defenders that are chasing Kyler Murray right now. Doug Flutie made people look stupid on the regular. I think there's a comparison to be made there. Am I out to lunch or not? Well, here's the thing. I did not watch Doug Flutie on a regular basis when he would have been at his athletic peak. And I know you're conceding an athleticism gap between the two, which is fair because, I mean, Kyler Murray, you know, one of the faster players at his position that we've seen in the NFL, right? He's he's a phenomenal athlete. So I can't comment on the athleticism gap between the two. But what I think is kind of indisputable is that just in general, the NFL has more time for smaller quarterbacks and more time for quarterbacks who have the strength of making things happen outside of the framework of the offense, right? Who can make things happen off schedule, as they say, right? Who can react and do the unexpected and still have success. And that was very much Doug Flutie's style. We see a lot of that from Kyler Murray as well. I think that has become so important in the NFL that if you're a quarterback who has that ability, yeah, even if you're a little bit shorter than they prefer, I think you're still going to at least get an opportunity or you have a much better chance of getting, getting an opportunity, certainly than you did when Doug Flutie was coming up. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. And Flutie had to fight for every opportunity he ever got south of the border. He was given much more leeway up here, and he did some incredible things that nobody had ever seen at the time. He was fun, man, and it's that off-schedule stuff you're talking about. It's the innovation within the game because whether you're Kyler Murray or Doug Flutie, you've had to do something different your entire life. Like, the arm strength isn't a question. It wasn't with Flutie. It certainly isn't with Kyler Murray. But... Your throwing angles are a little bit different. Yeah, you can't see over every offensive lineman, but you've had to find lanes in a different way. You've had to get out of the pocket. You've had to throw from different places, different ways, and buy time for yourself. It's fun. It's fun. I know at times it can drive coaches crazy, at least it used to, but there are so many more coaches who are accepting of that now saying, I don't really care how it gets done. I just need the job to get done, and this guy seems to do it. Well, and and I think the coaches – they tolerate the risk more, right? Because they see the upside. You know, And yes, it's not always going to work out. Sometimes it is going to backfire. But on balance, for these guys 
who can make it work and make it still come out on the positive side of the ledger, I think coaches are willing to live with that more. I mean, Patrick Mahomes is the ultimate example, and he's in a completely different category than Kyler Murray. But, you know, you were saying earlier in the show, he makes throws that would get any other quarterback sat down, right? But the coaches understand, look, we got to let him do this. We have to let him do this because the upside is so significant. And even if you're not Patrick Mahomes, you can still come out on the right side of that equation where, yeah, you're taking some risks here or there, but coaches now understand you need to have that dynamic ability at quarterback. And it's okay. Yeah, take those risks. Sometimes they're not going to pay off, and maybe we'll have to have a chat about them, make sure you're taking the right kind of risks and all that. But it's okay if the upside is there. Well, and the other thing that makes it work, and this is where I stump for the receivers a little bit here, you've got to have some people within your receiving core who think the same way. Yeah. That when things do go off schedule, you have a similar brain. And you have a pretty good idea where you need to be, not just following the rules all the time. And the example you bring up with Kansas City might be the best right now in the NFL with, with respect to everything that DeAndre Hopkins did yesterday. Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey seem to share a brain yes. in those situations. How many times have we seen the behind-the-scenes coverage and the conversations from that organization about, well, Kelsey wasn't really supposed to do that on this play, but he saw the same things that Mahomes saw, and that's why this play ended up happening. Yeah, and well, and I mean, it's Travis Kelsey, but then he also has something similar with Tyreek Hill, right? I mean, like, how about the adjustments from Tyreek Hill on that 75-yard touchdown pass? That's an incredible play as well. I mean, it's it's special when you have that with one receiver or one skill position talent. Mahomes has it with two, and it's funny because I think one of the questions going into this season for Kansas City was, do they have enough depth at wide receiver, right? Because it's really Tyreek Hill, then a bunch of question marks after that. It might not matter. If you have Tyree Kill and Travis Kelsey, like, it might not matter who your third pass catcher is because those guys are just so dominant and, is, as you say, so in tune and on the same page with Mahomes. I literally read somebody who covers the Chiefs write that. I literally read that from them saying, you know what, there was no number three that kind of emerged the way that, you know, Watkins has in the past or a Demarcus Robinson at times. But that might not matter. Like, it's so yeah. might not. Like, who, like, who cares? That's, yeah. I, those two guys are so good, and the guy throwing the ball is so good. It just might not matter. Man, you see some of the things. You're right. Tyreek Hill's adjustment. While we're talking about adjustments, did you see the catch Chase Claypool made yesterday yep. down the sidelines? He is so good in the air. This is the frustrating. I don't like the Steelers just on general principle growing up, but I will, I will cheer for Chase Claypool 100% of the time. I get frustrated watching that offense when the ball isn't going where it's supposed to downfield because I think he can make so many big plays. And he's not the only one in that receiving core. Man, I know Ben Roethlisberger's going to the Hall of Fame the second that he hangs him up. It's got to be frustrating at time for those guys. Oh, it has to. That's a really talented wide receiver group, right, with Deontay Johnson and Juju Smith-Schuster. And I think Chase Claypool has the most downfield big play ability of those guys. Like Deontay Johnson is someone, you know, okay, he can thrive even with this version of Ben Roethlisberger because that's a lot of what he wants to do anyways is that short kind of under stuff. Uh, and he's going to rack up the receptions. You know, Chase Claypool, he can be effective in this offense, but you do have the feeling that there's so much untapped potential there because he doesn't have a quarterback who can find him down the field. They're not going to run an offense that gives him a lot of opportunities to make those big, explosive plays. I mean, we all remember the athleticism that we've seen from Chase Claypool early in his career. You know, go back to the draft combine. That guy is an athletic 
Marvel. And I hope that sooner rather than later, he's in an offense, he's playing with a quarterback that gives him more opportunity to show that off. Yeah, I agree with that, and people don't like to hear it. Steelers fans don't like to hear anything negative about Ben Roethlisberger, but I leave week one the same way I left last season, wondering about his ability to push the ball down the field, especially on the outside. Don't sleep on Juju Smith-Schuster either. Remember early in his career, it wasn't just catching the five-yard passes and then turning it into something. Juju was catching balls down the field. He had the cover of Antonio Brown at the time, but he wasn't catching everything short and then turning it into something and going high volume on receptions, low number on on yardage when he had his breakout season it's because he was making his way down the field yeah and he's not getting the chance to do it anymore either right it's like in a diff with a different quarterback we could look at that as you know one of the best receiving cores in the league and i just don't know that any of them are really going to get the chance to be that to be in that conversation you watched sunday night football last night right yes every time you watch the bears do you feel as though Allen robinson is being wasted for yet another (laughs) 60 minutes Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, I do. And man, I don't know. I I just don't like what are they really doing there? And as you said, I think you said earlier, Scotty, you know, Matt Nagy's coaching for his job. It, It can't be more than a couple more weeks before we see Justin Fields. Even if you don't think Justin Fields is clearly better than Andy Dalton at this stage, at least there's the upside there with Fields, right? At least, like, if you're coaching for your job and you feel like you need, I don't want to say a miracle, but you need something to go really, really well, that's just not going to happen with Dalton. Like, there's no upside there whatsoever. So, yeah, Justin Fields might make some plays that make you want to pull your hair out as a coach, but what were we just talking about? you got to be willing to take the risks with the upside, and Justin Fields is the only guy there that has upside at the quarterback position. That offensive line sucks. That offensive line is no good, and Dalton's not going to get away from the pressure that's coming in weeks to come. I'm usually on the side of, hey, let the player marinate. And look, if Justin Fields doesn't have a firm grasp of that offense right now, then he is the most important asset they, they have moving forward, and they have to protect him if that's the case. But when he's been in there, that hasn't seemed to be the case. He's going to be able to extend some of those plays. He's got to be in there pretty soon. Adam, the former bath guy, saying, don't sleep on Tua and the Dolphins. I was pretty impressed with their defense on the weekend. They got lucky the way the Patriots got lucky in the past, though, didn't they? A couple of fumbles there from Stevenson and and Damian Harris really cost New England the game. I like the way Tua started yesterday. I didn't love everything about it. I'm sorry. I'm still – I need to see more. I need to see more with Tua. Yeah, I thought the the most encouraging thing from an offensive perspective for the Dolphins yesterday was Jalen Waddle looking really solid in his first game, right? And I agree, you need to see more from Tua. If we do see more, he needs to have, I think, Jalen Waddle have a big year as a rookie wide receiver. They have other weapons there to work with. It's not as if he's the only guy who can make plays. But Parker I think made he a has catch a yesterday. Oh, sorry, James. Yeah, Parker, Parker made an <laughs> no. incredible catch down the sideline. No, yesterday. no, he's good. Like he's he's a really good receiver. So they do have other weapons. But I liked what I saw from Waddle a lot. Yep, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. That brings us to the end of the first program of the week. Good stuff. Put it in the books. Jamie Dodd, well done once again. Chris Faber, Greg Ballack, big ups to both of you back at Mission Control. Raja Shergirl put this program together. He's the producer today and has been for the last number of days. Excellent job once again. We're going to turn you over to Sportsnet today. Bick Nazar, Katie Caldwell in again this week. They've got you for the next couple of hours. Continue to send your text their way, 650 650 It's the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Enjoy the rest of your Monday. Enjoy the Monday nighter. Opening game of the series between the Rays and the Jays. 
Have a good one, everyone. We'll talk tomorrow morning.